You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C19. My name is Jean Lee Cole. I'm a professor of English at Loyola University, Maryland. And I want to tell you about a book that did not, and would not, go away. The words that became the book Freedom's Witness first popped into my field of vision over a decade ago. Words like timberhead, flimflam, noddles, words in all capital letters and italics for even greater emphasis. These words did not appear in a speech by Shakespeare's Falstaff or in a parody of one. I was seeing them in an 1865 issue of an African-American church newspaper called The Christian Recorder. At the time, back in 2005, I was under a tight deadline. I'd been asked to write an essay on one of the first known African-American novels, The Curse of Caste, by Julia C. Collins, and the only available text of the novel was the one that had been serialized in The Christian Recorder. And the only version of The Christian Recorder that was available at the time was on microfilm. So I was reading all 25-plus installments of Collins's novel, inch by inch, column by column, in very small, frequently illegible type, scrolling up and down the long columns that snaked across the dim screen of the microfilm reader. The Curse of Caste, while a very interesting text to analyze, was not much fun for me to read. A classic tragic mulatta tale, I find it, to be honest, overwrought and maudlin. While I was reading, my eye kept being drawn to the next column over, where those strange words and phrases kept appearing. Snake-hearted squatter smatters. Hydrophobic, dropsy-headed oligarchy. As the weeks passed, I realized that the columns my eye kept catching on all had the same byline, the initials HMT. I tried to ignore HMT, but found it impossible. I became fascinated by the story HMT was telling from week to week, a story he was in the process of living, unlike the story of Julius C. Collins was fabricating. He was in the Union Army, I learned, serving in Virginia, then North Carolina. He was on the battlefield and rode a horse, but was unarmed. He was a preacher, it turned out, a chaplain for the newly formed black regiments of the Union Army. As a chaplain, he dodged cannon and grape with the rest of the soldiers. He was afraid he would drown at sea. He worried for his life and the lives of his brave boys. He consoled them as they lay dying and wrote letters to their wives, their fathers, their mothers, if they didn't make it, or even if they did. He taught his soldiers how to read and collected hundreds, if not thousands, of books, Bibles, and newspapers for them. He preached on the battlefield, in the homes of free blacks, in town courthouses, in the courthouses, much to the chagrin of defeated white Southerners, who found the mere sight of him at the lectern, he related, as much gospel as they could swallow in one week. He described Jefferson Davis as a man of bestial vices. 
but he was also suspicious of Lincoln, describing his preliminary emancipation proclamation as one of the most ingenious subterfuges to pacify the humane and philanthropic hearts of the country. He later changed his mind about Lincoln. And always, always, he trumpeted the bravery of black soldiers, correcting the popular perception that African-American soldiers would flee or simply surrender themselves in the face of battle. After I finished the essay on the curse of caste, I moved on to other research projects. But I kept thinking about HMT and periodically went back to the microfilm to find and read more of his columns. I eventually deduced that the initials corresponded to the name Henry McNeil Turner. Once I knew who HMT was, I was able to find out much more about this mysterious, charismatic writer. He was the pastor of the Israel AME Church in Washington, D.C., and a rising star within the denomination. He had lobbied for the enlistment of black soldiers and was one of the Army's most active recruiters. To recognize his efforts, he was named chaplain of the first U.S. colored troops, becoming not just one of the first black chaplains in the U.S. Army, but also one of its first black officers. With the help of an undergraduate research assistant, I located and then transcribed all of Turner's columns, totaling some 90,000 words. Turner's use of initials, it turned out, was the only circumspect thing about him. I wasn't sure what to do with all this material. I really knew nothing about the AME Church, and much of Turner's writing concerned church governance, annual conferences, and debates on theological issues. But I thought that if Turner's voice was able to reach me through the hazy blur of microfilm, it was a voice others would find worth hearing. His muscular, forceful, yet often colloquial language contrasted with both the sentimental outpourings of writers like Collins and the finely honed rhetoric of Frederick Douglass. I wanted people to appreciate Turner as a prose stylist, not simply as an eyewitness. I tentatively shopped a proposal to a few presses where it generated some interest as a history text. You'll need to get a historian to write the introduction, I was told, and he, yes, they all said he, will have to help you write the notes. No kidding. Even before Charleston and Charlottesville, Civil War history was so fraught with conflict among historians, reenactors, enthusiasts, and demagogues, I didn't want to touch this with a 20-foot pole. I asked a few historians I knew if they knew anyone who'd be interested. I got no leads. I even offered to give away the transcription files, but got no takers. Historians, I learned, aren't naturally inclined to be editors. So the manuscript sat for years. Then came the Civil War sesquicentennial in 2011. The hoopla surrounding the anniversary of the war finally got me motivated to do something. I decided to take on the historical research myself and spent a year and a half learning about the various battles that took place on the Virginia front near the end of the war, about the debates surrounding the enlistment of black soldiers, about AME church hierarchy and church history, about Turner himself. As I predicted, publishers wanted to take advantage of the sesquicentennial, so I was able to get the book under contract with the first press I tried and the press was able to find a Civil War historian where I could not. He, yes, it was a he, after all, was Aaron Sheehan Dean, an endowed chair of Civil War history. 
and he wrote a lovely preface that gave the book some historical cred. Freedom's Witness, the Civil War Correspondence of Henry McNeil Turner, finally appeared in spring 2013 from West Virginia University Press. Once the book came out, I was finally able to put a big the end on the book that wouldn't go away. I didn't look for HMT. Often, it seems that Turner came looking for me. But once he got his tenterhooks in, he never let go. Freedom's Witness is an odd book in my scholarship, being somewhat out of field. My research specialization is in progressive era American literature and culture. And I certainly never had any interest in the Civil War before I edited this book. But it is most certainly the result of my research in periodicals. We who study periodicals insist that magazines and newspapers are more than a collection of individual texts. An issue is an assemblage of interrelated texts, each providing a part of the context within which the others are read. As we like to say, texts published in periodicals must be considered within their publication context. Freedom's Witness, in a sense, was an accidental result of a very conscious process. I found HMT because I was trying to place Julia C. Collins's The Curse of Caste within the context of The Christian Recorder. Unexpectedly, Turner's columns, which provided a part of this publication context, came into view as a new text. I think that our suspicion of religion, as well as our assumption that periodicals are purely ephemeral, have prevented us from recognizing publications like The Christian Recorder as rich veins of literary ore. We need to see publications like church newspapers as important outlets for creative expression, especially for marginalized populations that lack access to mainstream publishing networks but, and lack the capital to publish books on their own. The Christian Recorder, for one, not only published novels, as Eric Gardner's Black Print Unbound, published two years after Freedom's Witness has shown, the recorder published memoirs, speeches, sermons, short fiction, and poetry, all interspersed with the news. Taken together, these texts show us the richness and variety of African American, not to mention American, literary expression during a period once known almost solely for the slave narrative. In the closing weeks of the war, Turner wrote, I have seen war wonders. I hope you'll give Turner a chance to show these wonders to you for himself by buying the book, adopting it for a class, and keeping this text in print. Having wrested Turner from the pit of silence, I hope you'll listen to what he has to say. Thank you for listening. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.